This morning I'm going to talk about, as I said in my prayer, a uh, story of the prodigal son, which is in Luke 15. Um, it's a story that has really meant a lot to me over the years. Uh, it's really brought clarity to my life, and I feel like Jesus really kind of dissects the scriptures here and kind of gives us a really good insight of really what the gospel is and what it means to us. Um, the prodigal son is probably, probably probably one of the most popular story, short stories of all time. Um it's one of the most beloved, and it's also probably one of the most misunderstood. Uh, Rembrandt did a famous painting of the prodigal son. Shakespeare uh, used the plots and the motives in The Merchants of Venice and in, in one of his other plays, Henry IV. Uh, Charles Dickens said that uh, it's one of the greatest short stories ever told. So it's something that's been around for a while. Um, So like I said, Jesus really uses this uh, this parable giving me the answers to as I was going through the, the scriptures. And, and that is, uh, the first one was, you know, who is the gospel for? And any other, the gospel of Christianity and any other religion. And third, how can the gospel motivate us today? So hopefully we'll leave here with a little bit more understanding of you know, how we can practically, um, how, we, how we can make this practical in our lives. So... Before we uh, kind of dive into the scripture, I want to give a little brief context. Um, as we go into Luke 15, Jesus is, uh, basically, he began his ministry, you know, he, he began like going around and preaching when he was around 30 years old, and when this, uh, when this um, scripture takes place, he's about 33, so he spent about three years of his life um, already in ministry, and Historians say that you know he, he went to the cross between the ages of I think 33 and 34, so there's probably another four to six months, so he's pretty much on his way for sure um, to the cross. And as we begin Luke 15, I'm just going to read uh, Luke 15 one here, and, and we're going to kind of talk about who Jesus is actually telling the parable to. Uh, Luke 15 one. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to uh, near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, "This man receives sinners." And eats with them. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawn near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and, and eats with them. So what's kind of important to note here is he, is, is Jesus uh, eats with the tax collectors and sinners. And so when you eat with someone in that culture, it, it really means that you accept them. So like, there's a theme that's gonna I'm gonna kind of talk about this morning. It's a common theme of you have um, uncleanliness and cleanliness. And so, like, the Pharisees, in order to go in the temple, they had to be clean. And, uh, like, this conversation, this parable could never take place around the temple just because you have tax collectors and sinners there. They were considered unclean. And one thing I thought was really interesting is, is it talks about, it kind of distinguishes tax collectors and sinners. You would think that tax collectors, you know, we all know the story of Zacchaeus, you know, um, you, you would think that tax collectors would be just under sinners. So, like, if we were to say, you know, who are the sinners here this morning, we'd all probably raise our hand, knowing that we all struggle with certain sin. But really, in, in the context of the scripture here, when it refers to sinners, um, at this period in time, there was very much a caste system. Like, uh, like they were divided into classes by their socioeconomic statuses. Kind of like Haiti, but more like India today. Really, like, so if you're born into a particular social class, uh, the lower class, if you were born a beggar, more than likely you're going to end up a, a beggar. So really, the sinners in society who they're referring to are the lowest of the low. They're the deformed, the decrepit. If there was a whorehouse in Jerusalem, this prostitutes would be here. That's the type of people he's referring to as sinners. And then you have the tax collectors. 
And so the tax collectors are, are, are not only are they, at this point in time, pretty much Rome owns from England to India. And it's not like they could ring up, you know, Caesar could ring up, you know, down to India and say, hey, I need you to take out so-and-so. They had to have a huge army. They couldn't communicate, you know, over long you know, geographical areas. So they had to have this huge army that's pretty much governing over the whole thing. So some historians say that these tax collectors were, were collecting up to 90% of income. I mean, that's, that's crazy. And on top of that 90% of their income that they were collecting, a lot of time they're taking in even extra for them. So not only are these tax collectors betraying the local people, but also they're, they're basically thieves. So they're, betray- they're betraying and they're thieves. So we got some, so we have the, the, the Pharisees sitting right here. We have the tax collectors and centers over here. So you can imagine that these tax collectors are like, Jesus, you know, you consider yourself a rabbi. Why in the heck are you going to dinner with these unclean people, these sinners, the lowest of the low, and the tax collectors? And so as we see, basically, uh, Luke 15 is broken into three parables. And the third parable is the, is the parable of the prodigal son. But the first two, I think, are very important to know, too. Just I'm going to give you a brief context so that you really, it brings a lot of... Um, validity to what Jesus is trying to say to us in the third parable. But so the first parable is um, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. So basically there's a shepherd. He has a hundred sheep. And Jesus says, you know, what kind of man are you? Do you have a hundred sheep and you lose one and you don't go after that lost sheep? And when you go after that lost sheep, you find him and put him on your shoulders and you come back into the camp and you rejoice. Um, In verse 7 it says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let me read that one more time. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Okay, let's just picture it. you got your tax collectors and your sinners right here, right? You have your Pharisees. And so the tax collectors are probably feeling a little bit better about themselves because they're like, obviously I'm lost, I'm not righteous. But what do you think the Pharisees are thinking at this point? They're like, you mean the lost person needs to go to heaven and I'm the righteous person and I don't? So, I mean, you can see why the Pharisees kind of had it out for Jesus. Um, the second parable is the parable of the lost coin. And basically, a woman has uh, ten coins. And each coin, you know, in that day and age, the pay was about, each coin represented about one day's pay. And she lost one coin and she did everything in her house. Or she, she did everything she could to look for that coin all over her house until she finds it. And when she finds the lost coin... She calls up her neighbors, and she has a party, and she rejoices. So we kind of have this common theme that's going forward. We have something that's lost. We have um, someone seeking after that, which is lost. And when it's found, there's rejoicing. Um, and then we kind of, that leads us into uh, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son. So I'll pick up in verse 11. And he said, There's a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So, basically this father, this uh, Middle Eastern patriarch, um, that's somewhat wealthy, um, his younger son comes to him and says, I want my inheritance now. This is really important because the younger son receives one-third of the inheritance because the oldest son, eldest son receives two-thirds. But the younger son basically is coming to his dad and saying, by the way, I don't want to wait till you die. You're dead to me now, basically. I want my inheritance, and I want to go find my own life. So, can you imagine how disrespectful and dishonoring? He's basically shaming his family here. 
and a lot of the, I was reading some historical context, and, and they're saying it would not have been a big deal for the father just to kick the son out of the house right then and there and not give him his inheritance. But the father complies and says, and then in verse 13 it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Um, now you can just imagine what, what reckless living is. I think we, most of us have probably been there at some point. I know I sure have. I, uh, I've sought to find my identity and my security in many things. Because um, I had a void that I sought to fill. But as you see what happens here in verse 14, he says, And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. I think that's interesting to see, see that it says that he began to be in need. Um, verse 15, So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods at the pig's egg, and no one gave him anything. Um, you know, in Jewish culture, they don't eat pork. So you can just imagine how dishonoring this was to this particular guy. He's sitting here eating. I'm sure he would love to eat pork at this point, but he's eating with the pig's egg. So he's, he's at the lowest of the low. He is now with, with the tax collectors and, you know, and sinners, right? He's completely unclean. Um, but when he came to his, his, his senses, verse 17, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he's basically, you know what, I've reached rock bottom. I know that my servants are getting treated better than uh, I am, or, or my father's servants are getting treated better than I am right now. So he's basically rehearsing what he's going to say to his father when, when he approaches him. And I'll repeat that one more time. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he basically wants to be welcomed back and see if he can earn his way back to the family. He wants to be a hired servant. Maybe he can work his way back into his father recognizing him as a family member or even just putting food on the table. And in verse 20, um, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran, embraced him, and kissed him. Middle Eastern patriarchs do not run. And he ran. Like, that was just completely against the culture. He ran and embraced him. Um, and, the, and, and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father basically cuts him off. He doesn't care. He doesn't, he doesn't need him to work his way back into acceptance. What the father says, he says, But the father says to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put, on, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring a fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and, and they began to celebrate. So I have a couple things going on here. He... The, the, the father says, go get my cloak, my ring, and my sandal. Basically what he's saying is, I accept you fully back in my family. He cuts him off when the son tries to offer to do work, to earn his way. But the father completely, by putting the ring and the sandals in the robe, the best robe, that symbolizes his complete acceptance. Uh, and, and the son could do nothing to earn that acceptance, but the father just welcomes him in. And, you know, we think, big deal, he goes and kills the fat calf for a couple steaks on the grill, but... At this point in agrarian society, like it was a big deal for, for them to eat meat. So to throw the fat and calf on, it's a big deal. And you'll see the older son gets really upset about fat and calf in a little while. But, um, you know, 
this is the second question I think I asked when um, we began was, you know, what's the difference between the gospel and any other religion, um, the gospel of Christianity and any other religion? And I think really this kind of gets to the heart of it. Um, my wife and I were uh, were in Jordan a couple years ago, and um, we had the unique opportunity of really kind of creating an interfaith dialogue between some American students and some Jordanian students. And basically, we just kind of talked about some of the common misconceptions with Islam and Christianity, and we just basically had this week-long deal where we went and saw some sites and just hung out, and on about, on about day three or four, um, I kind of really earned, uh, or really did the develop some relationships with some of the people. And we're on the bus ride coming back from, I think we were coming back from Tetra. Um, but uh, I got into this conversation started talking about religion. And I, I asked my buddy, I was like, can I ask you a question? He's like, sure. I was like, so, you know, when you die, uh, you know, what happens, you know, in the Islamic faith? I don't really know. And could you tell me? I'm just curious. And he said, well, you know, I, I come before the judgment seat of God. I'm like, cool. And he, uh, he goes, and then, you know, depending on, and I don't know if this is true for all this, of the different Islamic sects or faiths, but this is what he told me. He's like, um, you know, and I tell him, you know, I've either been really good, and he, he, he you know, takes me straight into heaven, or I've been pretty good, and I've been pretty good, and he'll just send me back to some pur- purgatory-esque place where he can, where I can work a little bit longer and maybe get back up into heaven, or I've been bad and I go straight to hell. And so I was like, wow. And I was like, um, so... Where do you think you are right now? How good do you think you've been? And he's he looks at me. He's like, I can't believe you asked that question. Um, and he goes, uh, you know, I think I'm, I'm pretty good. I think I'm pretty good. And I was like, okay, that's. I think you're a good guy. Um, and uh, I don't know. I was a little awkward. <laughs> but then he goes, well, what about you? And I was like, well, nothing against you, but personally, I don't. I don't particularly know if I've ever done a, a good work perfectly. He's like, well, what are, you ta- what are you talking about? I was like, well, if I were to help an elderly woman cross the road, most of the time I would be so caught up in how good I feel because I just helped an elderly woman cross the road that I have pride, and that's sin anyway. And so he's like, well, I, I do good things with pure heart. I'm like, I'm not questioning that. I'm sure you. I'm just speaking on behalf of myself right now. And so he's like, well, what happens if, you know, when you die? I was like, well, you know, I come before the judgment seat of Christ, and our of God, and when God looks at me, and he asks me why I should go to heaven, I say, well, it's because of your son's righteousness. It's nothing that I've done. Because if I have any faith in my own works, it's, damn, I'm going straight to hell. I was like, so my acceptance is not based on my works, it's based on your son's works. So when he's, when God sees me, he sees his son all over me, because of that imputed righteousness, because Christ lived the perfect life on my behalf. And therefore, when God sees me, he sees his son. Um, so that was an interesting conversation. Um, so in verse twenty-five, it starts to tell act the second act of, of the uh, of the of the elder brother. Um, in verse twenty-five, now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So there's this rage going on. Of course, the older brother's out in the field, you know, working, um, and he called one of his servants and asked uh, what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fat calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. So you can just see the older brother right now, just ignore. He's like, What is going on? They killed the fat calf. I'm telling you, the fat calf's a big deal. Um, he's really caught up on the fat calf. Um, 
In verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. He would not go to the party. He was like, I can't believe this. This younger brother that's basically shamed my entire family, you know, on prostitutes, spent our whole inheritance on, on, on prostitutes, on lavish lifestyle living. He comes back, and what does my father do? He throws him a party. After he's already shamed him, he basically spit in his face. What are you doing, Dad? So he's so upset. Um, so he was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and treated him. So his father left the party, and he comes back out to, to see his, his older son. Um, but he answered his father, look. I mean, just, that's, he, you can tell by the language how upset he is. Look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat. Once again, like, his father is a fatted calf. You never gave me a young goat. More or less, the fatted calf. What is going on here? Um, that I might celebrate with my friends. In verse 30, but when this son of yours, he doesn't even refer to him as his younger brother. He says, but when this son of yours uh, came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to his son, the father said to his son, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. He was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So both the brothers here are seeking to find identity and who they are through their inheritance. One is looking to find um, find his his self through self discovery and lavish living. Um, the younger brother, and by doing a lot of times he's trying to fill himself with very bad things. Um, that I think we all agree on with that. Um, and the other brother uh, is seeking to find his identity in, in his uh, in his moral in his morality, um, and, and he did this by doing very very good things. But at the same time, they're both seeking to find their identity uh, in themselves. It was in both both instances it was very self seeking. Um, so really, it's it's not either. You know, a lot of times we try to. Focus on you know whether it's you know we're seeking self-discovery or, or, or one side might be uh, seeking moral conformity you know it might be blue state or red state or, or you know neither is right neither is the gospel both of them are equally sinful because they're they're focusing on self and um, so so going back to who Jesus is talking to here he's, he's talking to the ta- uh, the tax collectors and sinners. So you, you think the tax collectors and sinners are probably feeling a little bit better about themselves now. They're like, okay, you know, I could have been the lost sheep, the lost coin, or the younger brother. I'm obviously lost. Jesus is talking to me about the lost guy, but it seems like he wants to welcome me back. So I feel like I'm pretty good. The Pharisees are like, well, where am I in this story? Well, basically, when Jesus starts talking about the elder brother, he's holding a mirror up. He's saying, you are this older brother. You are thinking that you're completely righteous and clean and you won't hang out with tax collectors and sinners. You're too good for them. And um, what's really interesting is Jesus kind of um, inserts himself in these parables, like the shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. Jesus is the shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. The, uh, the woman that goes after the lost coin and finds it and celebrates. Jesus is the woman. And um, Jesus doesn't put himself into the third parable. And he leaves it at this. We don't know if the older brother goes back to the party or not. We don't know if the Pharisee 
can be humbled and realizes he's lost and has a need, he can go back to the party. Um, but what's really cool is, 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 is I, this is what I've got from the text, is Jesus really is an example of the perfect older brother. Because you see in society, um, and, and at this point where they are in their culture, the older brother was the, the one that was supposed to go after the younger brother, not the father. But the older brother doesn't want to have anything to do with the younger brother. But Jesus is the perfect older brother because he goes after us. And he gave up his entire inheritance for us. Uh, I want to end kind of by telling uh, a story. Um, you know, it's a, it's um, from a, a Robert Louis Stevenson novel, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, so basically... Dr. Jekyll realized that, you know, he really had some had some natural depravity to himself. He realized that he had evil inside of him. And uh, he really wanted to kind of separate the evil from him. He wanted to become completely good. So he sought out this potion. He was like, you know what, if I could find this potion where I could kind of separate the evil from the good, I could be good all the time. So, but when he did that, what he did was he created Mr. Hyde, which was completely evil, and then... Dr. Jekyll, who was, you know, good. But what happened when he turned into um, Mr. Hyde was he became so bloodthirsty for, for himself, for self-seeking, to go after everything that he always desired. It was just like getting drunk. He just kept, he couldn't get enough of it. He just wanted to seek more self-seeking things so that he could fulfill himself. And so when he did that, anything that got in the way, people got in the way, he killed them. Um, and so... What was really interesting was, um, you know, Mr. Uh, Dr. Jekyll began to realize, he's like, uh, you know what, I cannot believe, I, I never fathomed that when I was evil, I was ever this evil. I never could even understand the depth of my depravity. But so he started working on the potion, and he kind of got a, a handle on it. And at the end of the novel, um, he's sitting there on his park bench, and he's, he's turned back into Dr. Jekyll, he's good now, and... He's like, you know what, I did I did all these horrible things. Um, I was Mr. Hyde. I killed people, I did all these horrible things. But you know what, finally got a grasp of it. I've got a hold of it. And, um, I've done a lot of good things to compensate for it. I've helped people out. I've given a lot to charities. You know, I've really, really done good. I finally feel like I, I've, you know, made up for that. And he looks down at himself. Finally, for the first time, feeling like he's actually free, and he realized that he turned right back into Mr. Hyde again. Because he was so called up in his self-seeking good works to overcome. And so when he turned into Mr. Hyde, he uh, he got incredibly just depressed and he ended up committing suicide. Uh, sorry, that's coming down. <laughs> But my point is, uh, no, it's not about it's not about moral conformity. It's not about self-discovery. It's about something altogether totally different. It's about the gospel. It's about what Christ did on our behalf. No, what's interesting about that is, I can easily put myself in the place of, of the younger son. I, I throughout my life I sought to to fill myself to fill a void that uh, I knew existed. With, with everything I can think of um, that I thought might, you know, bring me temporary happiness or that I might find my identity in. Um, 
And ultimately, I hit rock bottom and I realized that I had a need. And, um, of course, Christ was right there with opening arms, just like the Father was, and he welcomed me in. Like many of you, uh, you know, I became fully accepted into the family, which was amazing. Uh, but oftentimes, uh, even today as a Christian, I, I get caught up in my moral conformity. Um, I become the older brother. I, I realize that I judge people. I think I'm better than other people because of my my good works or something. And before I know it, I'm not older brother. Um, and I'm trying to fill my bucket with, with um, morality to, to feel better about myself, to, to feel like I'm a good Christian when I'm missing a gospel altogether once again. Um, so once again, I just, I kind of want to end with this. Like, um, I think the third question I asked was, how can the gospel motivate us today? And you see, because if, if you're motivated by your morality or by seeking out self-discovery, you're going to fail every single time. But you're, when you're motivated by what Christ already did on our behalf, you succeeded perfectly, and you're going out and doing good works, there's nothing wrong with good works or being moral, not, nothing at all. Our, What's wrong is, is what happens when we do it and what we focus on our identity and that. But you're, when you're motivated by what Christ did on our behalf, then you have nothing to prove. You don't have to earn I'm not like the, um, the Islamic guy that I'm talking to. I, I'm completely accepted. I, I have complete and utter assurance of where I'm going when I die. And so it, you have a peace and you can rest in that peace on behalf of what Christ has done in your life and not what you have to do. So you're at the dance. You're at the celebration. You're back at the party. Um, because of what he's done. I think that you have to do. So, I just want to uh, welcome you back to the party this morning. Um, you know, let's live like, you know, let's let's go back to the cross and, and let's let's uh, rejoice in what actually happened on the cross. Not it's not something that just gets you somewhere. It's something that we live by every single day. Um, I'd like to close with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to just sit here, open your word up, and you just to give us. Just nuggets of joy of the gospel. Father, I just pray for the hearts and the minds of everyone here this morning. I pray for the leadership and the church. But I pray that as we go on this week, Lord, we can rest in the peace and the perfect assurance that you've given us through your son. Father God, as we take communion this morning, Father, I just pray that we can also just picture the blood of Christ that was spilled for us, knowing that it covered us perfectly. That we have nothing to prove. It covered us perfectly. And God, when you look down from heaven, you see us. You see your son. Slain for us, Father. We have nothing to prove. So let us leave here this morning and rejoice and be glad and celebrate because of what you've done. In your precious name of Christ. Amen.